How good is our God to bring us together today and allow us to see one another, even if across the room, even if through a mask. What a gift. What a gift. And he who gathered is faithful. Let's turn our attention to him now as we, oh, that's pretty good. Thank you. As we, um, as we look at the scripture for today. Uh, the reading, uh, the New Testament reading comes from Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had things and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, they spent much time together. In the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Our gospel reading is from John chapter 15, verses 26, 27, and following. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who comes from the Father, he will testify on my behalf. You also are to testify because you have been with me from the beginning. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. Yet none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father, and you will see me no longer. About judgment, because the ruler of this world has been condemned. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's uh, pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on these remarkable words of Scripture, both Jesus' promise that the Spirit would come, but also this early amazing snapshot of what happened among people when the Spirit did come. Would you give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts that want, we ask in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. 
So it's just so fantastic to be with everyone this morning in this context and seeing so many of you here for the very first time after this, these 14 months of COVID lockdown. Uh, and it's an odd Sunday too, right? Because it's one of our last and we're saying goodbye and all of that good stuff formally today. But of course, it's never really goodbye with the Bartholomews. And you've known us long enough to know that that's true, right? Um, and it's a hard thing to think through, like, how do you reflect back on life as we've lived it over 15 years after starting a church? So I recently read Eugene Peterson's recent biography that when Collier has written and published, um, and there's a place in there where he simply describes a moment where he was frustrated with his son because his son kept saying, Dad, you you just always preach the same sermon, like you've got one sermon, or this pastor's one sermon is blank, and yours is this. And Eugene felt a little bit like, what do you mean one sermon? I've been a pastor of this church for 30 years. And later as he reflected on that, when he was moving into the next stage of his life and vocation, he said it made sense all of a sudden that there's like a central truth, right, that marks your life. So this is where Tuck begins to break down, sorry. <laughs> but again, you know Tuck, and you're used to that happening, so we'll just trudge on forward here. So when I've thought about, so what is like the one sermon that I think I've preached? And so this is where I get to be a little bit explicit and say, hey, this is what you should have heard these last 15 years. And this is what you should hang on for your next 15 years as Chris takes on sort of the work of pastoring Resurrection Church in this new moment of the church. And it's this, and it is that God loves you. God loves you. He chooses to interact with you on the basis of fatherly love and not at all on the basis of judgment. His greatness, his holiness does not get in the way of his being your daddy. And that is the message I hope you've heard. And the second part of that is very similar. He invites us to love one another the way we've been loved. So Jesus invites us to live in community with one another in love. And the text that we just read is fitting of that message. It's one of the earliest snapshots that we have of the early moments of church life in the wake of Pentecost. <laughs> you know, and it's just a few lines, really, that Luke sort of teases us with and invites us into a new space of imagination and reminds future readers of, hey, when the Spirit of God came, this is what happened. People love God, and people love one another, and it's really just that simple. Luke's not so much telling us how to do church, but he invites us into the story of this early moment of the church in which church started to happen. He seeks to ignite our own imaginations for more than this world offers us, in the way we either think about God on the one hand or the way we think about our neighbor on the other. He invites us to a kind of wholeness that feels often impossible because we look back just on this last year of COVID lockdown and we all feel very alone. 
And many of you have lived with a lot of fear around health issues and just on and on. And some of you have even lost people that you love because of COVID or other diseases or other incidents in our world. We feel profoundly fragmented. It was a world of political fragmentation, right? This was one of the most difficult election cycles I think I've ever lived through as a human being and that you've lived through. And so we saw inside of our country just the normalcy of fragmentation and the normalcy of hate, that what we really ought to be just taking for granted is that human beings would just live increasingly isolated lives from one another. And it was a moment this year when the racial reckoning issues and questions of the long abiding, deep, long history of white supremacy and racism sort of came into the foreground for many new people for the very first time. And so it's been a part of our conversation as a church even, right? We're thinking through what does it look like to participate in renewal of some sort. Willie Jennings in his book, The Christian Imagination, it's a book that he's written in which he explores the history and the theology beneath racism. If you want a really robust theological way of thinking about that, read his book. It's remarkable, he says quite simply, that the human imagination is diseased. We don't know how to want what we ought to want. And we don't know how to get past the barriers that divide us and the values that are erected culturally and internal to our sort of all the systems of our world, right? All of the institutions of our world, even inside the church, that sort of move us away from one another, especially away from difference. The snapshot that we see here in Acts is one of the most challenging snapshots that I think you find in the whole of the New Testament. I think the miracle that happens in this moment that Luke is writing about stands on par with the miracle of the resurrection itself. And it may be even more impossible to imagine that people would love this way. Two things, right? Their life with God and their life with one another. So the first thing Luke shows us is that people begin to relate to God really differently. So instead of being sort of off-putting with God or holding him at arm's bay because you're afraid of what it will be like if you got near a God who is great, who is awe-inspiring, who is holy, and instead of sort of, you know, feeling indifferent about God, all of a sudden, there's just more and more curiosity about him. Like, they just want to know more and more. And the way we know that, as Luke writes about it here, is he uses this little phrase that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, why the apostles' teaching? It wasn't because the apostles were like known to be fantastic preachers and teachers. Like this was, this was not a post-Pentecost moment where they said, hey, there's a really great new preacher in town. Let's go hear him. That's not what's going on. And it wasn't a moment when, uh, you know, Luke felt some need to sort of just drop this line in there so that people would say, hey, remember the authorities are the apostles. Like just get the hierarchy right, folks. That's not what he's doing. And it's not even a moment when he's sort of in a passive, aggressive way saying, by the way, it's really important for you as the body of Christ to study the Bible. It's not what's going on. There is just this delightful curiosity about the conversation that God the Almighty is having with the world and the person of who Jesus is. And so who do you need to talk to? Well, you need to talk to the men and women that lived in and walked with Jesus. They, they saw what he did. They heard the stories of Jesus. And so they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching because they're the group of people that have the ability 
to connect the dots between the story of Israel and the story of Jesus. They just want to know more. So they're growing in that. This curiosity just grows. And it spills over into this very sort of nascent early practice of the Eucharistic fellowship, right? So this is the meal that we celebrate each Sunday when we take wine and we take bread, right? There's some version of this that I think Luke is sort of alluding to. I'm surely it's not what we're doing this morning exactly, and it's not what the church would mature into its doing, but it's this early moment where people said, you know, before Jesus was crucified, he gathered the people at Passover, and they celebrated Passover together, and then he gave them bread and wine. So it's this moment of intimate fellowship in which we together, not just in listening to teaching, but in doing something together that we experience that we're family. We're family alongside of, with God in the presence of God, and we're family with one another. This experience of God's hospitality became so central to the life of the church in its early days. And it's the work of the Spirit that makes that happen. Paul later in his, in the Roma, his letter to the Romans, he will say that it's the Spirit of God that is in you and among you that enables you to sort of wake up to this intimacy that you have with God as Father. So he says, remember, it's by the Spirit that we cry out, Abba, Father. That's not a liturgy per se. It's just that when I wake up in some place of joy or I wake up in some place of horror or I wake up in some place of sadness in my life, that I just am conscious of the fact that I belong to God as a son, as a daughter. He's my father. So we cry out, Abba, Daddy, Papa. And the word that is just there in that experience is welcome. You are always welcome in the presence of God. And you're meant to welcome in the presence of God the presence of all of the others that walk the face of the earth. And so from this space, they also talk to God. Luke says they prayed, right? And so prayer is not this weird, strange thing that we do. This is conversation with God. In other words, we hear God, we listen to him, but we also talk back with God. In the same way that you might, if you just think about someone that you love or you care about a great deal, what do you do? You tell them how you're doing and you inquire about how they're doing. And in that exchange, you're in, in our exchange with God, we're meant to just be bringing ordinary human life into conversation with him. So whenever we take up in our church tradition, the prayers of the people, that's exactly what we're doing. We're saying, here's some hard things or here's some good things, Lord. We need to see your kingdom come. So we pray, we talk to God, we live in this conversation with him, this conversational life. And Luke says that they were just a community that lived in awe. And what, what is that? Well, if you saw people loving God that way and listening to God that way, and you're experiencing the fruitfulness of what it means to be so loved, yes, you would stand in awe. So there were great things happening in the presence of God in that very early moments of the Christian community. And the second thing that was awe-inspiring for them is not just the way they related to God and the way God related to them and love and healing and greatness, but the way they started to live their common life together with one another, right? And this is where this text becomes one of those really hard texts for Americans to read and listen to, honestly. I think it's, we may have the hardest time in all of the world, I don't know, but I think everyone struggles with this text. 
I say that because whenever I first remember hearing this preached, I think I was at First Baptist Church Atlanta, Georgia, when I first heard someone sort of intentionally preach this text. I think it was Frankie Schaefer, actually, as I'm coming to my mind right here. And almost immediately when someone begins to preach this text, you begin with the caveats. Like you, and you know it, right? You just, all of a sudden, you're just running through your mind, oh, wait a minute, you know, Luke, he's not talking about Christian socialism, is he? I don't think so. No, that can't be what he's talking about, right? And then you, we begin to sort of grip down a little further. Well, wait, now, there's nothing wrong with personal property. You know, personal property is a great thing and it's guaranteed to us. We should uphold value and right to that, right? And so we just sort of run down the list of the caveats that are just sort of running through our mind. Market capitalism, okay, this is not against that, right? This is not communistic. This is not, and we just go on and on regardless, whatever culture you've come from and whatever political or social context you've come from, you read these words and what we begin to recognize is that some prior formation the muscle memory of that prior formation just grips heart and mind and body and wallet. So we live afraid of that which God is doing and bringing into the world, this beautiful snapshot of a community of love. Two things stand out for me here about this particular moment of the community. The first is just this, is that people were not afraid to be known by one another. In other words, shame begins to evaporate from this community. Now, Luke doesn't say that. I know that. But it happened. And how do I know it happened? Because how do you live with need? Just think about the most needy moments that you feel yourself in. Maybe it's a place of failure. Maybe you lost a job. Maybe there's, you know, just, just go through what, what is your the space in your life, the moment when you feel most needy. How do you relate to that? Most of us hide it. We tuck it away. We sort of pull it inside because I don't want you to know or see that I'm weak. I don't want you to know and see that I failed. I don't want you to know and see that I don't have what you have or what I think everybody ought to have. And just go through all of the iterations, but this seems to be a community that is absolutely unafraid of dragging their whole real self into the light of the presence of Jesus. And to bring that real self in front of other people and not hide it. I'm willing to be seen. There's a place in an essay that Rowan Williams has written in which he says that faithfulness is not about crafting laws that enforce or keep us from doing wrong things, but faithfulness is the establishment of a context of grace in which I am not afraid to be seen by you. I refuse to run away from the stare and the gaze of someone else. And the beautiful moment in this particular moment of the church's history is that they seem to be living that way in this context of grace in which it's okay to be known even in your weakness and your vulnerability. And it's seen also here in this moment when people started living with their things, right, their resources differently. Because, right, we know that we live in a world in which we are prompted to think about fearfully, right? We assume, right, a scarcity mindset. We assume that 
what we have could evaporate tomorrow or that what we have could be taken away from us or that we could end up in a place of neediness. And so what do we do with the things we have? We grasp, we hoard, we hold it close, right? I don't, if, if, I'm, if I'm wealthy, I don't really want everybody to know how wealthy I am. If I, if I have something I'm really kind of secretly afraid is gonna be taken away from me. But this is a moment in the community of the church, this moment of Pentecost, when people started living in the abundance of God's presence among them. And it changed the way they live with their needs and it changed the way they live with their resources. They were just open. So Luke says they did weird things like they liquidated assets, right? And so back then it would be, likely it would be they owned a piece of property and they sold it, right? I mean, that's how you, they didn't have the kind of investment opportunities that we have in our world, right? They, they had property, they had real estate. And so you'd liquidate the real estate and then you'd, and then what did they do? They took it to the apostles, again, not because the apostles were these great managers of resources, but because they knew where the needs were. And they trusted them to help them sort it out where do, you, where do we need to give what we have? Where do we need to make up the difference? Where do we need to help the whole of our community live with a spirit of abundance? Now, I read this, and I wish that, that Luke said more because it, right, these few words, these few lines, they just prompt so many questions for us. But he doesn't say more. He seems to be very content to just sort of drop this small snapshot of a picture into this history that he's telling and writing and to let each of us in future generations that would read this text begin to dream ourselves and let God awaken our imaginations for how we live with what we have and how we live with the stories that we've lived, even the sad and hard parts of those stories. God breathes new life into the tired and the diseased imaginations of human beings. And when he does that, it sparks surprising intimacies among persons that were previously separated from one another and lived in isolation and further fragmentation. So when Stacy and I moved our family from New York City to Philadelphia, we did so with a little bit of kicking and screaming, honestly. I think we had learned to live in New York, which is no small feat. We loved New York, we liked it, you know, although it was hard. But we came to Philadelphia thinking, well, we're going to start this church. And we came a little bit like, are we really the ones? Like, should we be doing this kind of thing? I don't know. This wasn't in the plans. It wasn't, you know, on the script that we had written for our lives that we would start a church. And we certainly hadn't graduated from, you know, some spiffy church planning academy. We didn't have, you know, a certificate of excellence. We didn't have... Uh, any sort of reason or to think that we would be successful at this work. And we certainly didn't have a tidy model in hand. Why did we do it? We did it, I think, because we started to realize that what God was inviting us into wasn't really anything differently from what we had been doing all along. And that was living a life of love before other people and inviting other people to have open hearts and homes the way we were trying to have an open heart and a home, to experience God's love and express it toward one another and toward our neighbors. And look, here you are. It's a beautiful story. One of my many, many happy memories 
in our community happened at Matt and Rachel Allison's wedding reception. I don't even think Matt and Rachel know this. <laughs> I don't think I've ever shared this with them, but I was on the porch. So the wedding reception, for those of you that aren't familiar with their wedding, uh, happened. The reception was over in the Woodland Cemetery, which at first I was like, really? We're going to a cemetery to celebrate a wedding? And it was this beautiful occasion. We were sharing barbecue on the porch. I think Chris Curry had brewed some beer for the special occasion. And I'm standing out on the porch, and by the way, I think Alex Arnold was dancing, and I won't say more about that. Um, but I'm standing out on the porch, and I'm uh, talking to John Cunningham. I think John and Caitlin had been a part of our community maybe for about a year, maybe two years at that particular point. And John just says, you know, you and Stacy must be really happy about this church. And I said, well, tell me more. Help me understand why you're so happy. You know, I'm like sort of teasing him out there. And, I, and he just went on. He said, you know, we've just never experienced community like this. Um, our friends are buying houses in the neighborhood. Like that just is, we've never been a part of a community where people want to sink their roots the way they seem to be sinking their roots into this place. And that had been something we'd certainly talked about, but it wasn't something I was particularly thinking about. And John just said, it's such a beautiful and delightful thing to see this happen. It makes us want to be a part of it. At the time, I was a little bit more obsessed with budgets. I was a little bit more obsessed, okay, a lot more obsessed with numbers than with how many people were buying homes in West Philadelphia. I was a little more concerned about other pastors in the area. I was a little more concerned about comparing, you know, city church with other churches. I was a little bit more stuck in this really broken space where pastors often end up of just constant comparison and anxiety because I thought I lived in a world of scarcity, not abundance. I thought I lived in this zero-sum game where if someone succeeds, it's always at the expense of someone else. And so you're always on your game, always trying, always managing, always juggling, always anxious about church. And that's a really sick place to be. Pastors have diseased imaginations too. And in that moment, what happened for me is that the Spirit descended in that conversation and I saw more than I was seeing. And it was such a lovely gift of the Lord to just remind us of this earlier vision that we started off with and that God was actually continuing with even though I may have gotten sidetracked. It was just so beautiful and such a wonderful moment. Stacy and I set out prioritizing this common life because we didn't want a church that was built on our personalities. In some ways that's unavoidable, you know, I get that. But we really cared a lot about how you related to one another. Were you doing this acts kind of life together? That's what we wanted, to see a group of gathered human beings that began to express a humanity that was renewed in the likeness of Christ, loving God and loving neighbor. The other night, the consistory had a little, a little gathering for us. Chris alluded to it. We were, I think all of us were vaccinated and we took off our masks. And it was just this beautiful moment of being in a room with 25 people or so and, and just uh, enjoying the company of one another. 
Near the end of the night, Josh Stamper, he reminded me of an illustration that I used years ago and probably one too many times about uh, hermit crabs. And some of you may know that. Uh, so true confession, this is an illustration I stole boldly from John Applegate, who's a psychiatrist in our neighborhood. I was just talking to John one night about his work. I said, you know, John, how do you, like, how do, you do what you do? Like, you hear hard story after hard story after hard story after hard, and just on and on. What, how do you conceptualize your work and your vocation? He said, you know, I'll tell you something I learned from my kids. He said, they have hermit crabs. And when the hermit crab outgrows its shell, you absolutely have to place a larger shell beside it so that it can make its way into the larger shell or it dies. And he said, that's what I see my work doing. I'm just trying to come alongside of people, expanding their vision of their humanity and who they can be and what their story can be inside of this larger story of God's great love for them. And I thought, that's the work of the church. It's my work. Jesus' whole life was about setting this shell-like structure beside us to awaken and heal our diseased imaginations, inviting us to sort of creep over and explore, dip a toe in, sort of become curious about God and curious about one another and curious about all of the different kinds of one another's that exist in our church community and that exist in our world. God wants to enlarge your humanity, not shrink it. Jesus promised those that were close to him in the gospel reading that we read this morning that in the aftermath of his death and his resurrection, all of which was still very confusing to the disciples, they had no idea what he was talking about, that God would continue this work of enlarging their lives by sending the Holy Spirit to the community itself so that the church would become the body of Christ that is still in the world, that is meant to live beside neighbors in such a way that we awaken their imaginations for what can be, so that we move away from these diseased and shrinking imaginations that we're all plagued by, and we just wake up to how much we're loved, how little, how much we are loved by God himself, how much we're embraced by God, not excluded by God, so that we would become a people who are telling others in practice and in experience that it is possible to embrace one another, even when we discover that we're so very different from one another. As Luke remembers back to this moment of the church's life, he just simply concludes and God added daily to their number the people that were being saved. It wasn't a strategy. It wasn't like the church dreamed up some amazing vision moment. They were just being the church. And God added to their number because people were willing to come out of their tiny little shells and explore the beauty of a very new way of being human in the world come into the fullness of their own stories. The mission of God was furthered by the church being the church in this particular way. And that is what I hope that we've managed to be a part of these 15 years, that we've helped enlarge your imagination, both for who God is and how he chooses to relate to you as a God of love. 
and how he chooses to invite us into the same practice of love with one another and with our world itself. And it is what I hope we leave you with and what Chris and Bonnie and Scott pick up and the new staff, all of them, and the consistory and the small group leaders all pick up and just keep carrying into the neighborhoods of Philadelphia that God is a God of love and he has spoken to us these last days in his son. And by his spirit, he continues to speak to us and invite us to experience his love and invite us to express the same to one another and to be a part of his great project of renewal and healing in his world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.